If we are all the land of misfit toys, you know, citizens and fellow travelers, how do we intentionally grow new people in our industry? So that's the question, podcast listeners. Hello and welcome to the Event Safety Podcast. <laughs> Danielle, take it away. You took my gig. <laughs> I didn't mean to. Well, hello and welcome to the Event Safety Podcast. I'm Danielle Hernandez. And I'm Steve Edelman and we're rolling here. <laughs> <laughs> this is friends of what we call a soft start. <laughs> so, so podcast listeners, what we're talking about today is it, Aaron, what was what was the name that we came up with? How did you know this was a thing? How did you know this was a thing? So and my question was was like, what's 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 this? Because all of the people we talked to today are not only uh, event live production professionals, but they're also strongly involved in safety culture and and you know, there are a lot of things. So this, this equals what, Steve? So this equals being involved in the production of live events, caring about safety and willing to lead both in you know, our particular field of live event production and operations and interested enough in the industry kind of writ large to you know, take a, a forward role in safe production and operations. So here's the context, podcast listeners. So this is a conversation that arose during NAM, um, the NAM show. Uh, NAM is the National Association of Music Merchants, and they do their enormous annual event in Anaheim, California every year. It's a giant toy store for musical instruments. And you know, if you play, you should go because it is super fun. I don't even play and I think it's fun. Anyway, you get a brass instrument of every color of the rainbow. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, people trying out drum kits and, you know, every imaginable stringed instrument and percussion thing. You know, if you can bang on a box, someone's selling it in cool colors. Anyway, so that's NAM. So in addition to all of the cool musical instrument toy store aspects of the NAM show, there is other programming. And now getting to the point of this podcast, among the other programming was programming jointly created by ESTA and ESA. And there was a meeting. And so not to bore you with meetings that we have attended, but in this case, I'm going to drop a name because it's getting to why we're talking with Aaron Gravy and Boxer Hardison, which is what we're going to finally do in just a moment. So there was a meeting. The meeting has the unwieldy name Event Industry Advancement Roundtable. And there wow. were a whole bunch of smart people from important organizations in different aspects of the production and operation of live events. It was a cool group of smart friends. Um, and there was a comment, as often there is when we get a cool group of smart friends from the event industry together, there was a comment which was, well, this is kind of a land of misfit toys, and we're all members of that land. You know, we are the misfit toys. And the context in which that comment arose was, 
all of us smart industry friends and leaders of companies and things like that, we're talking about how to grow more people who will make production and operation of live events their career. We've all drank the Kool-Aid. You know, we are the, you know, citizens and fellow travelers of the land of misfit toys. How do we convince other people that this is good and fun and sufficiently remunerative that they should kind of follow in our footsteps? So that was the question that arose from this event industry advancement roundtable meeting, at least in my mind, period. After the meeting, there was, as there often is at these conferences, a happy hour on the show floor. And so me and Aaron Graby and Boxer Hardison were standing around a high top table, drinking a beverage and having a conversation which went along the lines of, well, how did you know that what you do was a thing? And that, of course, is the title of this podcast, and good for Aaron to remember it. So, Aaron Graby, tell us what you do for a living, and how did you know that it was a thing? Wow, good setup, Steve. I Thank appreciate you. the recap. Thank you. Um, Not my first rodeo. Yeah. Uh, so my name is Aaron Gravy. I am the uh, executive director of ESTA, which is the Entertainment Services and Technology Association. I am at the start of my fifth year as executive director for ESTA, um, and I started out as an intern, actually, at ESTA in 2012. So from 2012 to 2019, moved pretty quickly through the company. Um, I got my start. I, I've I've not done anything else really in my life uh, uh, besides technical production, um, live event production, lighting design, lighting technician. And I found it when I was 14, I believe. Um, and that was in high school. Um, I had tried out for some sports teams and didn't quite make that. And I had tried out, uh, you know, tried to participate in a couple of other clubs and student council and some other things. And student council didn't jive with my schedule. You had to be there at like 6 a.m. and that didn't work for me. Um, and so uh, I, I uh, as a sophomore in high school, you, you have to take an elective at my high school. And I was looking around for an elective to take. And well, I had a crush on the woman who was teaching the technical production class. So I thought, well, let me go and try that and see what this is all about. Um, she was absolutely fantastic. She was incredibly smart um, and taught me a lot about, taught me everything I, I learned as a, a 14 year old or 15 year old in technical production. Um, through that, uh, through high school, I had um, she pushed me to go and do other things in Illinois. There's something called the Illinois High School Theater Festival, and that happens annually. And what they do is they, they have auditions for all the actors and actresses who are going to participate in this all-state musical. And they have auditions and, and interviews for all the technical production roles, lighting roles, uh, carpentry roles, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and so I had auditioned for... Uh, to be a part of their tech crew. And I knew 
I knew enough about the lighting aspects to, to make that squad. But what I didn't know was some of the construction stuff. I'm not as good with uh, uh, putting with carpentry as I am with electrons. Uh, and so, Same. <laughs> I, yeah, and I feel like that sort of really impeded my value. You guys are Martians because, to me. Uh, you know, when you're not doing the, the lighting setup and stuff, you're expected to jump in and help with whatever other crews need help. Um, so I didn't make the Illinois High School Theater Festival all state tech crew. Um, but I did continue on as, as uh, lead electrician and lighting designer for many of the productions at my high school that happened while I was there. Um, and immediately out of high school, I applied to go to um, uh, DePaul University. DePaul University only at the time accepted four lighting design students per year. And I didn't make that cut either. Um, so I applied to go to Columbia College in, here in Chicago. And uh, the, um, I was going to be a lighting designer. I was going to go to college to be a lighting designer. And it was, uh, I don't know, a sort of strange time in my life at that time. And uh, I didn't have enough money to pay for all the books that I needed, et cetera. So by mid-semester, I dropped out because it wasn't working and life was weird. So I ended up um, kicking around and doing a few odd jobs. Uh, I did door-to-door -door sales at one point. That was interesting. Um, I did a stint uh, working coat check at Chicago's largest nightclub. That was fun, that was lucrative actually. And through that connection, I, I, I wound up speaking to the lighting guy at the nightclub and I started helping him out when I could, when I wasn't doing coat check. Um, and so I did that for a while, um, and, but I was still looking for the next thing and I didn't quite know what that was. But right around the corner from that nightclub was a small uh, theatrical supply company called Grand Stage Lighting Company. And I had heard of them because I think our, uh, our lighting system had been installed in high school, had been installed by Grand Stage. So I had heard the name. And I walked in one day and I said, I'm here to work for you. And uh, Janelle Becker was behind the counter and she said, okay, great, let me get you an application. Um, that was when I was 19. And I worked there from um, 2000 to 2009. And in 2009, if you recall, the economy had sort of tanked and all of the things that I loved about my job at Grand Stage sort of went poof. I really enjoyed doing the bridge lighting and, and architainment type stuff that was uh, prevalent at the time. And when the economy tanked, all of the money to do those types of projects sort of evaporated and um, President Obama was making it easier for people to borrow money and go back to school. So that's what I did. I left Grand Stage after nine years and hightailed it to New York where I uh, got a late in life undergraduate degree, uh, which is a Bachelor of Technology in Entertainment Technology. Um, this is a very specific type of degree that didn't even exist when I came out of high school. And I know for a fact that even if I had gone to college straight out of high school, uh, I, I would have been going back to do this style of technical production because the technology changed so vastly between 
let's say 1998 and 2008. Uh, and so I'm grateful and thankful that all of those things uh, led to, you know, led me to this point and that um, I, I, I'm, I'm grateful that I was able to go out and get all of the work experience that I got before going to school. Um, and going to school in New York, um, I made connections with uh, my mentor, John Huntington at New York City College of, College of Technology. Um, oh, and I also forgot to mention that the president of Grand Stage at the time when I was hired was the, uh, his name is Glenn Becker, and he was ESTA's very first president. Were it not for Glenn Becker and my predecessor, Lori Rubenstein, ESTA would not exist. So in a weird kismet way, uh, coming full circle to having started working at Grand Stage to becoming the executive director, only the second executive director of ESTA in its uh, 30 plus year history. Um, it feels pretty good. I love this story. The story is beautiful. It fills me with warm fuzzies. Um, and it also, you know, when I've heard other people's stories that are all remarkably similar, there's a, an initial experience typically in high school with theater that's that little spark. And then people are always trying to find it again when they get out and they may go to college for it and they may, you know, I did a bunch of temp work. Can I tell you about customer service for computer software programs? Yay. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> but, but finding your way back in and getting the extra education that, that may not even, as you said, been available the first time you took a swing at it. And that's just fantastic. Uh, would you say that, um, that the, does, does the ESTA piece feel like where you wanted to end up? If you think back, you're like, yeah, this is exactly where it should That's be. a very good question. Um, you know, I, I miss working in the field. I certainly miss working in the field. I miss, uh, oddly enough, I miss laying cable. I miss hanging lights. I miss marking them out. I miss marking out the pipes. I miss doing the math that's involved in making sure that the loads are balanced, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I feel like when I started working for Grand Stage, I was exposed to the business side of the industry. Whereas prior to that, I was only, uh, you know, wide-eyed for the creative side of the industry, which is where a lot of people start. A lot of people come out of, uh, you know, high school, having gotten a little bit of taste for this world and, and, and the, you know, pie-eyed aspirations are, I'm going to be a lighting designer, I'm going to be a sound designer, I'm going to be the head of design in whatever particular facet of this show you were working on. And working for Grand Stages, at least for me, was a little bit humbling because it let me see exactly just how wide this industry is. It, it let me see just exactly how many businesses there are that support this industry. And it let me see that there are lucrative careers in those businesses even if you're not a lighting designer on Broadway, right? There's very few jobs that will let you be the lighting designer on Broadway. There's very few of those seats available. Um, so yeah, I feel like it was, uh, it was the right place for me. And it took me a while to put all the pieces together about Glenn being the first president of Vesta and my mentor in college being very good friends with my predecessor and how that all sort of fit but it felt right 
and I'm, yeah, the, I, 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 I'm in this for life unless they kick me out. <laughs> so Aaron, I, I just wrote myself a note because I picked up on two themes that, well, totally resonate with me. And, you know, of course, these podcasts are all variations on therapy for Steve. Um, but the, the two themes that I picked up from you were you developed a passion for something early, in this case, inspired by someone who just nailed it for you. Um, and I think that's the way a lot of people start with whatever is their passion. You know, they have a teacher who inspires them. You know, for me, it was an English teacher and a social studies teacher. And lo and behold, I can't do science, but I can do stories and history and law. Um, so you identified something that you were passionate about. And then you talked about it because it's compelling to you. And we're all most interesting when we're talking about stuff that we're interested in. And it sounds like your ability to talk about lighting and and your passion for that is something that kept getting you introduced to more people. That's right. That's absolutely right. Uh, I, I, you know, they they say it's about who you know, and a lot of times it really is. And that's not to say that you have to know somebody to get in, but the more people you introduce yourself to, and the more smart friends you make, uh, the more opportunities will arise. I think that's that's definitely plain and simple to me. Yeah, I, I would say that that's like the world's best advice. And something that I try to tell students whenever I'm talking to them, I was like, it's really, let me introduce you to people, go out and do this thing, meet more people. And I think it's programs like uh, the new one coming to Rocklet, it's half of the value of that program is the contacts are gonna make being in that place. And that's that's the same deal with, with any college or trade school is, is making connections so that you can go out and end up as the head of ESTA <laughs> as many people on the way. <laughs> yeah, and I still I still run into people that I I met early on in my career working for Grand Stage as a 19-year-old and and talking to you know customer service reps of various manufacturers or suppliers that we were buying from. And I and I it's lovely for me to see their trajectory too because they're not in the same roles. They've moved up, they're in director roles or managerial roles, and their careers have also advanced, or they've, you know, as people often do in this industry, they've bounced around. They've worked for many different manufacturers or many different supply companies or vendors. And you you make a connection with one of those people, and then you see them throughout your career. They may not have the same title or the same credentials, you know, behind their name, but you you end up seeing them throughout your career. So it behooves you to not burn bridges, make friends with those people, keep those friendships alive, be cordial, you know, when you see somebody and that, you, you know, you haven't seen in a long time and keep those relationships, you know, burning. Yeah, Aaron, I will second that last part because our industry is so fluid and we do wind up changing jobs or changing employers on, you know, at least a fairly regular basis. The smart friend that you have one day in company A will be your smart friend in company B in a few years, which means now you have a connection in company B 
that you didn't have before. So there's a reason to make and keep your friendships. Yeah, absolutely. Aaron, it's not the only reason we're friends with you, by the way, but we're, we're looking for things from Esther. <laughs> so we have a second guest who has been unusually quiet. Our, our silent partner. <laughs> our silent partner. On? So ESA treasurer and friend, Boxer Hardison. Uh, Boxer, doubtless you've traveled a totally straight and narrow path to your exalted current position in life, right? I mean, yes and no. <laughs> I've been at it for wait a, a while. Hedge. Wait, wait, wait. And, and what exactly is your yes. exalted position in life right now? Uh, founder and president of Bigger Hammer Production Services, which provides crew predominantly for live events in Southern California and across the country. Um. And I will ask you about the other hat that I know you wear also, but talk about your yeah. your bigger Do hammer Steve. trajectory first. Yeah. Um, without going into a full-blown origin story, um, the usual like disassembling, uh, disemboweling Radio Shack uh, uh, equipment um, uh, as a teen, maybe, maybe younger, taking apart the tape player and trying to figure out how that stuff works to... Uh, um, you know, being in bands or supporting bands in high school and, you know, again, to Radio Shack, which I guess people do on Amazon these days, you know, buying a small mixer and a microphone and stuff and, um, and just figuring out, Hey, what is it? How does this stuff work? What do you do? Um, you know, I had a, a friend in high school whose band started to get some traction on a radio station and, you know, we packed up all the gear and threw in two pickup trucks and drove to Arizona to do a gig. You know, it was my first road gig, you know, where we were all 16 years old. And I don't know if the college knew that <laughs> paid us to play and had open bar or whatever. Um, presumably not. Um, maybe we're 18. Um, definitely not 21. Um, uh, then I went, uh, went to college for, uh, you know, I, I, I'm the probably the rare person who had zero high school theater um we had a drama class at an academic high school that the plays they did they would do at a different high school we didn't have any facilities um so there wasn't really an opportunity to, to tech that was easily readily available right um but i went to cal state fullerton go titans um here's a plug for state schools and um uh, my degree is in radio, TV, and film, and thought, oh, you know, I was really a fan of kind of auteur movies at the time, um, and thought, you know, wanted to get involved in in filmmaking. Um, and the program I was in wasn't really amazing. It was kind of a tough time. It was just before the digital, you know, or the dawn of the digital, you know, nonlinear editing. So the school had like old tape machines and you just it, it, the theory classes were easier to get than the practical classes and they were dropping radio from it was radio tv and film and they have were just getting ready to drop the radio portion of it little did they know that podcasts such as this were going to be a, a, a thing right i'm sure it's now like podcasting tv and film um, um and so when i was going there um uh, I started working for a couple uh, bands, 
and for um, a really indie promoter um, and also for the ASP program that had two bands a week played at the school. There was an outdoor amphitheater that maybe like held like a 500 to a thousand people, like a concrete amphitheater. And we'd, we'd push out this Rankus Hines rig with, um, with a Yamaha analog Yamaha console set up monitors and, and uh, PA, you know, twice a week, we'd move it from the pub up to the amphitheater uh, and set it up twice a week. So I've learned how to mix audio there. I know it was, really enjoyed that it was just cool to be able to bring out the instruments that you wanted to hear and so you know while i was doing that i worked for a million different places around town that's where i first started working at in theaters worked at the la mirada theater and at Sirius performing arts center and eventually the carpenter performing arts center um and um was also um there was somebody at the, the TD at Cal State Fullerton, a guy named Kevin Wheeler, was the stage manager at Irvine Meadows at the time. And so I started working for him and working for Avalon Attractions, which is, you know, bought th three different times and is now part of Live Nation uh, Empire. And um, um, so got that's where I got, you know, my first taste of theater and uh, was working the fly rail. Um, eventually, you know, had a, uh, there was a guy named Rollo who taught me how to run fly rail, which was really cool. Still one of my favorite things to do. Um, and, um, I, as I met more crew, there was this thing called the Hollywood pirate crew. It was basically a piece of paper with people's phone numbers on it. <laughs> right. And so there was two or three different people who had contacts and they would, um, Hey, you want to go tip a truck for 50 bucks? Um, whatever, right. Go unload Aerosmith that up at the Santa Monica airport at a one. Um, and so the list got kind of passed around and, um, I ended up working for a guy named Pete Buckland who worked for Rod Stewart for a million years and, he was off the road for a while and he's a production manager for a bunch of radio shows and movie premieres. And so we ended up doing our first, I think the first gig we ever worked together turned into a riot in downtown LA. And that's, that's another story for another time. Um, but um, so there were kind of the, the point of that was as I got that gig. So somebody said, Hey, can you go uh, unload this sound system? You know, uh, on this Saturday morning, you know, and it usually tip the truck, go away, come back that night. And instead, you know, Pete hands me a schedule of like, here's what we're doing today. And I'd been on a couple of gigs at that time, you know, a few dozen and nobody had ever handed me a schedule. So clearly like his expectations of, of what he saw for me for the day were different than what I had walked in with. Um, but, um, you know, it worked out. <laughs> and so eventually. So hey, Fox, you... are you saying that you just basically faked it till you made it? I mean, to an extent at that time. Yeah. But it was, you know, Hey, get these bands on and off stage or whatever it was. Um, you, you got know, the show call. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but through doing those that evolved into doing a bunch of shows together where it was, Hey, can you bring four crew? Can you bring six crew? And you know, we were all getting paid cash at the time. Um, you know, 
you know, walking back to your car after the riot with, you know, 200 bucks in your pocket, you know, you're a little pensive, uh, <laughs> but, um, something about the way the radio stations, but they were going to have to change their accounting. And so the, the, the stuff was going to have to be on the books. And I was like, huh, how do you start a company? Um, and then it was, okay, how do you get workers comp? And had a couple other, I was working at a, um, I just had this huge light bulb, how you became a staffing person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that was pretty You're much right, it. Wait a minute. I, have I was working list. at a, um, as a stage manager at, well, this is funny. I'd got fired as a stagehand uh, because I didn't, the stage manager um, had issues, shall we say. I, uh, anyway, I, I won't involve the name, so I'll, I'll keep the innocent out of it. Um, but eventually he got fired and I got a call. Hey, can you come down and stage manage this gig tonight? And that was the same thing. Can you book crew? So I started booking crew for that club and for the stuff I was doing with the radio station. And then uh, now that production manager approached me to book this big corporate gig. Um, and it didn't happen, but it pushed me to go dot the I's and cross the T's. Uh, you know, I was, I was around 96 um, and started that company. So I had learned that, you know, booking crew was a thing from the, you know, the Hollywood pirate crew list of, you know, here's the, here's the stage hands to call when, you, you know, you need to load a truck or unload a truck or whatever the case was. So, so yeah, your, your path was both a straight line and really not at the same time. I see why you said that. Um, right. So I started at 96 and, you know, I was on 90% of the gigs at the time. Um, but I also started touring in 93, a little bit more 94, 95, 96. And, you know, I was on the road and like faxing and payroll from, you know, second story production office at a club in, in Paris, I remember, um, so trying to juggle that, you know, and it went from having a gig a month or every other week or whatever to, you know, basically having book and crew every day of the year um, to where when, you know, in 99 or 2000, you know, said, hey, I'm going to get off the road and try to make a, uh, a full-time job out of this, you know. Yeah. So, so. You know, again, I, I can see analogies to to my own path and, and the freelance work for everybody. The, hey, here's a show call when you thought you were getting cut in the middle of the day. Uh, you know, I, I, I remember those same things myself. So that leads to the next question. You know, the world is a different place now. How do we get other people to make some of those similar choices? And frankly, I would say at the time that we were doing that um, conversations about balance and work life and, and healthy boundaries <laughs> and all of that were not yeah, the same you, thing. <laughs> yeah. You, you worked 20, 30 days in a row. If you had to, you worked 20 hour days and got up in four hours and drove back the next day. I mean, I'll, I'll, you slept I'll, in your car, you slept in the dressing room trailer, you showered yeah. in the campground, came back. I mean, yeah. <laughs> for me, I'll, I'll riff off a little bit of what, what Aaron said, and this is what we, you know, we talk about a lot here at Bigger Hammers, you know, you get, especially people with theater degrees who are like, I'm going to be an LD. <laughs> you know, they've been focused <laughs> on that for at least four years, maybe eight years. You know, I think that, my like, mother still thinks I'm a lighting designer. I'm like, yeah. No, I mean, no. <laughs> no one knows what I do. Like, friends are like, you're, you're, 
you're a sound guy, right? Like, no, no. No, no he just wears the MDR 7506s. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a little bit out there, but 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 is having so it, a little bit back to is like I worked a lot for several different lighting companies when I was not on the road, right? So I I, you know, I was a master electrician on some stuff and the opportunities to get on the road were as a backline technician. And I'm not a musician, but I can tune a guitar. If I call my, my friend who owns 12 guitars and go, hey, how do you tune a guitar? <laughs> so that's a little bit of that faking it until you make it, Steve. Um, you know, my first opportunities were getting bands on and off the stage and tuning guitars and tuning drums. Um, and then I came back into town. I was, you know, working as a as a L1, L2 or whatever. And, and um, I went out as a carpenter on a theater tour. I mean, you just, you got to try on a lot of, I mean, for me, you know, it, trying on a lot of different things to see what really resonates with you or just take the opportunities that come. If you have some aptitude towards them, you know, take them. Um, it, you know, I think, you know, the outreach to finding people is the there is the real to your question, Danielle. Is the the our industry and many industries have that same question of how do you reach people that aren't naturally exposed to our business, and really how do you reach people in a in a genuine way that it's this is a lot of blue collar jobs, right? There's there's a lot of white collar jobs too, but the the foot in the door is almost never a white collar job in this business you know i mean i worked as a production assistant for a guy named patrick stansfield you know he had a a garage converted into an office you know he was ahead of his time from work from home um you know and he was advancing neil diamond and barbara streisand and madonna and just reams and reams and reams of of notebooks of three ring binders of you know advancing a world tour in 95 was you know yeah, yeah, there was a fax machine there, you know, that was the the high tech, you know, uh, maybe there was AOL, I don't know. Um, and then, like I said, working under Pete Buckland as a production manager, you know, you can learn a lot by being around people that are at the, that are the top of their game. And so I was fortunate to have that. Um, but a lot of people aren't exposed to that or don't have yeah. access to it. They're not in a college to yeah. say, hey, come you so, you did a good job of pushing the speakers out to the to their quad. Come work at the theater with me this weekend. Yeah. How how do we take it from the accidental to the intentional? Yeah, that that that's the question, and we're certainly not going to answer that during this podcast. But we can talk about it. I mean, the push um, is to get is to get into high schools and 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 city colleges, community colleges, um, and I think that's one of the things that I was excited about with the industry roundtable that we're sitting at is that some people are far much farther down the road on, on working on that than, yeah. than I was aware of. So that's, really we use cool. the analogy of Island of Misfit Toys and that's really what, um, what I fell into. That's what pretty much everybody I know in this industry sort of fell into. It was, you know, I didn't fit in some other place and, you know, these people were really cool and weird and interesting. So I'm going to go hang out with them. And then I made a life out of it. Um, and the event industry roundtable, event industry advancement roundtable that we did, um, that was spearheaded by NAM, ESA, and ESTA, um, moderated by ESTA's current president, Todd Spencer. And 
it was designed to be a place where we can all come and share what the various organizations within this industry are doing, what their missions are, what their visions are, and where there might be overlap in what we're doing as organizations for this industry on behalf of this industry. And the thing, the overarching theme I heard in, in terms of overlap, or at least in terms of desire, was this idea of workforce development. And that's exactly what we're talking about is how do we institutionalize this industry in, as a career that should be taught about, sought after, put in front of people as a packaged deal. Look, there's this whole world out there where you can go and do this creative stuff and there's the business side and there's the white collar and the blue collar. And it's still an island of misfit toys. You're gonna meet a, really lot of, you know, a lot of really interesting people. Um, but my key takeaway from that first meeting, and I say first meeting because I imagine that we'll have many more, was this, the importance of working on workforce development as an industry. It all ties back to this um, idea that, you know, we sort of all uh, became aware of during the pandemic, which was that in the eyes of the government, we are not one industry. We are fragmented, we are segregated, we are in different labor codes, all over the map as an industry. And so when something like the pandemic happens, there isn't a way for, uh, you know, the larger industries, medical industries, airline industries, et cetera, they have fully formed workforces. They have fully formed, uh, you know, uh, industry that can go to the government and, and, and rally on behalf and say, look how big we are. Look how Lobbyists. important we are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But we don't have that. And one of the reasons we don't have that is because we are not under one umbrella. And so how can we fix that? We can fix that by creating an NAICS code. We can fix that by creating labor codes for each individual state, for each individual job type that's out there in our industry. And that I think was seeing all of those folks in the room, all the, all the you know, high level people from all these different organizations who are talking about having the same problem uh, was inspiring for me because we can, I think, hopefully pool all of those resources between them because it's not going to be one person and it's not going to be one association who gets this done. Do you, do you ever have one of those moments where you're like, these are my people when it was like- Oh my God, every like, conference I go to and I'm like, <laughs> I've never complaining about before. not having a NAICS code. I was like, it's not just me. It's like, <laughs> what? Square peg, round hole. Our industry is very much a square peg, round hole, and we need to create square holes. What? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so that, that suggests something which I think is important for career development generally. Um, and you know, this sort of, you know, Marvel Avengers type organization of, you know, multiple organizations, you know, cooperating with each other. We don't have one on-ramp to becoming, you know, an event production or operations professional. We have lots and lots of weird things, which includes working coat check and going around the corner and saying, I'm gonna work for you and, you know, getting lucky with a piece of paper. But it seems to me that the common thread, um, you know, among the three of you and for me also, is just doing what you like 
a lot and talking about it until you discover that there's somebody else who's kind of the same. And now it's, you know, not round peg square hole or whatever boxer you were saying, but rather you realize, oh, maybe there's more than one person on our island of misfit toys, and maybe there we're are not such misfits after dozens all. Dozens of us. There are literally dozens of us. Yeah. Right. You know. I mean, maybe... I remember being at a theater twenty something years ago and describing ourselves as the island of misfit toys. You know, I think it's a common re- refrain. But yeah, it's it's still like you know, I think the 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 thing about the roundtable is like you know, locally, Bigger Hammer was working with a high school. But it's with one high school, and what is there two or three people maybe out of that program that are going to get into the industry and talk to a couple community colleges? And uh, we don't have anybody great in this program right now. And so uh, the encouraging thing was uh, some of the people at that table have developed curriculum, things that they can get put into the various state departments of education, get them as a class with. You know, um, uh, my wife's a credentialed teacher. She's a librarian by trade. You know, you have to teach to the standard, right? Or else you can't have a class. And so this is shit we don't know anything about, right? And so it was nice to see there's people at that table who are way down the road of developing that stuff and working together for, instead of everybody reinventing the wheel or making little pushes, is to have a collective push. Um, Danielle, did you want to talk about the backstage exam? Because that was brought up at the meeting. Yeah, so uh, USITT, in in conjunction with the Education Theater Association, is developing something called the backstage uh, exam. And it's a technical theater for high schools. And they're developing actual curriculum and a lot of schools and and education departments are wanting actual standards that people are teaching to so that curriculum piece um, and that is part of what this is is designed to do uh, it is rolling out i think a soft rollout this year um, and it's a, a developing thing but i encourage uh, people to go and look at it we've talked about it before on the podcast so you can go back into the archive and um, re- re-listen to that one uh, dana taylor was our guest and he is one of the creators of it. So, but it, it ties into that same thing. It's getting, making us a more unified industry and getting the stuff into the school district, which helps them figure out that there are jobs, not just as a designer. Right. And I think the cool thing about that is it's not just the exam, but it's the instructor resources, right? Correct. Because absolutely the the exam's fine, but if you don't have a, a roadmap to get that knowledge, um, and so they do have. I just looked here; they have an instruct instructors resources page as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yep. mean the the first step to creating an institution is calling it by a name that people will recognize. So, you know, I love the idea that there is this on ramp into our industry that is being created by, you know, partner organizations, you know, in our Marvel Avengers universe, because that is going to lend itself to the creation of a common vocabulary. And then people who have jobs that they're looking to hire for, they will use that vocabulary. And then people who want to work can find people who are looking for work. 
and voila, now you have an actual pathway which doesn't include working coat check or having you know random scraps of paper thrust into your hand. Now there can be some career planning to get into our industry as a professional. And it helps the schools to be able to offer specific options if we have a curriculum that is gone through their right. Experience. I mean, there are lots of you know different types of tests that you can that you can take sometimes in high school, like an aptitude type test, and it might tell you your skills are befitting of being an astronaut or you should be an accountant or you know something like that um, but never will it say you should be a live event production specialist in any way because that's that's not in there yet that's that's kind right. of the goal is you should make... really be a theater theatrical stage manager but not a rock and roll stage manager right <laughs> right, yeah, right you live in the dance world you know Stay in the dance world. Yes. I actually <laughs> have like five of those tests from high school through young adulthood, and they are remarkably consistent for me. Circus behold, performer. Uh, <laughs> yes, lawyer. <laughs> exactly, boxer. So yeah, I, I mean, it, it's super important to name what we're doing here so that people can identify themselves in that. And then we really aren't misfit toys. Then we're just toys. Yeah. And we know and then what maybe kind our of parents will take us seriously when we say <laughs> we're going to go into theater. Right. Exactly. <laughs> one, of the, one of the challenges we have that's by no means, you know, resolved. Are you is... going to talk about technical directors or titles? Um, <laughs> no. No. The, okay. Go on. That like <laughs> pitching this. There's not a lot of full-time jobs, right? As in entry level, right? It's not like you get out of Harvard and you go work for an investment bank, right? You know, with your whatever mid six-figure salary or whatever, right? It's you get a gig here, you get a gig there. So we have like structural challenges that are really hard to overcome to say, hey, come be come run your own micro business of yourself, <laughs> you know, um, right. yeah. it would maybe you know, likely not with benefits and all these other things that are tough to overcome. You can get there in like two to five years or whatever. Um, you can, you'll string enough gigs together, but like bridging that gap to pitch to like the colleges all want to say, we place this person in this full-time job and here's the money for that. But I've never seen anything for, you know, Here's somebody to add to your roster, right? <laughs> right. Because even when you, or after you gain the skills, yeah, even after you gain the skills, you still have to go prove your worth by, by working all of the, the gigs that come your way. You, Boxer's right. You're probably not going to come out, even if you have a college degree in, a, you know, re, in, related to the field, you're not necessarily going to come out with a, a full-time job that you know, you're going to stay at for the next 10 or 15 years. It's just, that's, that's not, that's still not how the industry operates. You're still going to piece together some things, but the skills that you have will get you those things faster. They'll get your name mentioned more times than somebody who doesn't have those same skills as people are talking about, you know, their businesses and their productions that they've got to put on. Um, and so, yeah, you, you, but my point was more, more to the pitching it to the institutions right. is as an industry, 
we have to find a clear way to say, yeah, this isn't a nine to five, 40 hour a week, whatever, $50,000 a year job that you're getting. It's you're getting people into the industry. This is an industry that exists. There's a million pathways once you're in there, but that, you know, developing that workforce and that it is a non-traditional, you know, uh, on-ramp. Does, does the change? So here's a, a sort of metaphysical question for you guys. Do you think that the change in the economy to more of a gig economy anyway helps people get into the event industry and makes it an easier ask for schools to have event industry on-ramp programs because you know, boxer, the, the sort of straight and narrow career path that you just described is less common than ever before. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, so go ahead here. No, I was just gonna say, I, I think it does. I think, I think that the gig economy taught people the word gig that used to really only live in our world. Oh, so gigs. I was like, we're, I always say <laughs> we we're the original, the original gig, gig economy. economy. <laughs> like these are what yeah. gigs are. That's not, you know, I would say like, it is helpful that that stuff exists because if, if, I were getting into the business now and I only, you know, got a call, you know, to load in and load out something, you know, uh, a couple times a week, I'd be driving for DoorDash or Uber or Lyft or something. And you can, you can make a living. You can, you could pay your bills without have, cause the push and pull at that time was if you had a full-time job, you got to make that jump to not having a full-time job in order to, yeah. be available for the gigs. If you're not available, you're never going to get the gigs. It's a little bit of a catch 22 chicken and egg scenario. Yeah. So I think in that, in people's, to your point, Steve, in people's minds, just the concept of not having a jobby job, but also <laughs> the back end rubber meets the road finance part of it, of it helps people bridge the gap as they're, you know, on ramping as they're building their career. Yeah, I think it shows. I think I think I think that the parents will be much more open to the idea of their kid hustling to make a living, you know, by by working gigs or or making ends meet by working, yeah. you know, like you said, Boxer, DoorDash, or Uber Eats or Uber something like that in between gigs. I think it, that the yeah, it, it'll be interesting to me how the the young adults take that though because i think there's much more resistance there than from their parents well and the but other thing said, is we're not like, gonna is this the, today. Uh, <laughs> but uh, i'm just going to cancel that gig right i'll just uh, i'll just i'll just swipe up and close the app but um, you know it's like the flip side of the <laughs> of the gig economy being, being mainstream is not yeah that uh, the challenge we have in the industry is like <laughs> keeping the standards of being early sticking to your word being at the gig, you know, the commitment to it. Cause it mm -hmm. takes commitment to build your reputation, to, to, to be the person who's relied upon, who can get those further opportunities to get responsibility, you know? Absolutely. All right. Well, this, that feels like a good place to, to wrap this up. Uh, follow us on social media. If you got want to reach out, our email is podcast eventsafetyalliance.org. We'd love to hear from you. Um, as you probably have seen, hopefully, the uh, Event Safety Summit has been announced for Houston. Um, it should be going on sale soon, and we, we hope you guys register and come see us in the home of NASA. 
you know, we're, we're very excited about the whole NASA tie-in. So be ready for a whole lot of space jokes, <laughs> at least for me, if nobody else. Uh, thank you very much, Aaron and Boxer, for joining us today. And stay safe, everybody. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Danielle. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Boxer.